Reducing Crime podcast features conversations with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Kristen Zeman was the police chief in Aurora, Illinois, when a mass shooting took the lives of five factory workers and injured five of her officers. We talk about her new book, being the first woman to lead her department, and the resilience necessary to see her department through the aftermath of a mass casualty event. This is Reducing Crime. I'm your host, Jerry Ratcliffe. As the podcast enters its fifth year, if long-time listeners can believe that, I decided to change up the theme tune. The old theme was the outro that played over the closing credits for classic 1970s British cop show The Sweeney. What you just heard was the far more exciting intro theme for the same show. Too exciting? Let me know your thoughts on Twitter at Jerry underscore Ratcliffe. We'll stick with it for a couple of episodes and see how we feel. A couple of weeks ago saw the release of a new book, Reimagining Blue, Thoughts on Life, Leadership and a New Way Forward in Policing, by Kristen Zeman. Kristen was police chief in Aurora, Illinois, when, in February 2019, a former employee walked into one of the city's manufacturing companies and murdered five people. Responding officers arrived within four minutes and a gun battle ensued. The perpetrator was finally shot and killed by police, but not before four officers sustained gunshot wounds and a fifth was hit by shrapnel. Like myself, Kristen joined policing as a 17-year-old cadet. She spent her 30-year career with the Aurora Police Department in Illinois, during which time she was the first woman lieutenant, the first woman commander, and eventually the first woman chief. Having done her 30, she recently retired and is a sought-after public speaker on leadership and resilience, and she's still heavily involved in policing policy. I got an advanced read of the book, and as the blurb says, it's a raw and honest portrayal told about a noble profession suffering an identity crisis. She sneaked out of a meeting with the International Association of Chiefs of Police to join me in a coffee shop just around the corner from their offices to talk about being a pioneer for women in her department, the mass shooting, her father, also a police officer who ended his life with his own service weapon, leadership, and a whole bunch of stuff. As you join us, we are just chatting before the coffee arrives and taking in the cafe's ambience, if you can call it that. I, I came up here because it was just around the corner. Yeah. But I walked in and thought, hold on, this is the weirdest place. It is. Bit. They do bubble tea, but they're playing kind of soft cafe jazz yeah. in the background. Yeah, it's it like is. they've decided they have no idea what genre they're going for. They're just going to go for it all and see what sticks, right? Exactly, yeah. yep. I like it. What made you decide to start the podcast? So I wrote a book called Reducing Crime, a Companion for Police Leaders. Mm-hmm. It does get occasionally cited, which surprises me, because it's the least academic book I could think I could write. Mm-hmm. Because the Philadelphia Police Department put one of my old books called Intelligence-Led Policing on the promotion mm-hmm. exam, and I think they thought it would be doing me a favor. And the only reason I learned about it is that I had a sergeant. So once they to me in Philly, he said, yeah, I had to read your fucking book. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's great. And, <laughs> you're like, you're welcome. Like, Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. I'm like, seriously, why would they put that book on the exam? Right. It was written for academics. Yeah. It's brutal. So this book, Reducing Crime, is like half the size, okay. written in English. It's got pictures and different colors and uh-huh. vignettes. And I tried to write a book for cops. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to support that, why don't I support it with a podcast? Yeah. 
you know. Uh -huh. oh, here well, I am, so four years down the line. Yeah, I mean, it's only once a month, but it's good fun. And I meet some great people like yourself who have got ideas, who are prepared to you know, be vulnerable, put yourself out there. You know, reading your book was fascinating. You Did you read it? Yeah. Uh, talk about vulnerability. Yeah. That's exactly what that is. What sort of feedback have you got? When I first started writing it, I was not writing it for anyone. There was not a particular audience I had in mind because it's not a cop book. When you read it, it's a memoir. It's about a troubled childhood. It's about leadership. It's about failures, many of which I have, have you know, failed forward. <laughs> That's how we describe things yes, these yes, days. Failing forward. It's about <laughs> lessons I have learned about leadership by what not to do by watching others and being a product of their subordinates and saying, if I ever get into a position of leadership, I will never do what they did. And then it's about policing. Right. Wait a minute, this is not for the cop that, you know, it, it is for sure it is, but it's also for other people. And I love that feedback because people just automatically assume it's a cop book and no, it's not. To some degree, I think that is what makes some of the most fascinating television. I mean, I don't watch a lot of in fact, I watch hardly any police stuff because it's like you can just sit there and spot the mistakes. But the really good police stuff tends to be first and foremost about human beings. And the policing just happens to be the mechanism by which we discuss the city or the drug markets or human interaction. It's merely a mechanism to discuss all these other things that are going on. Hill Street Blues was a great example of that. I think one of the great examples of that where it was just about people. Yeah. Well, and that's why it was important to me, is this is what we're suffering from right now, today, in this present moment, not seeing each other as people. Yeah. Whether you're a police officer or whether you are a person who lives in the inner city, we're not looking at each other, we're generalizing, we're stereotyping. And so I wanted to tell the story, and I call it a misunderstood profession, because I believe that it is. I believe that when you look into the hearts and minds of the majority of police officers, they are good, people who want to be doing good things in their community they are here to help no no i'm sorry i'm on twitter and they're all racist oh, white supremacist nazi baby killers exactly exactly they wake up in the morning and they just want to eat babies you know yep. i mean yeah cannibals every morning they wake up and think who can i shoot today what unarmed person who is being completely compliant can i shoot today to me that's why the book became important to me is to tell a story of a flawed human who's a cop in reading it, and we should mention the name of the book, in reading Reimagining Blue, what I thought was really interesting is that it's almost you were destined to be a cop. Mm -hmm. Your father was a police officer, mm -hmm. and then you had all these experiences in your background. In reading it, I kind of felt like there was a sense of inevitability that you would join the policing profession. Yeah, and that's all I ever wanted to do. I was one of those kids that knew exactly what they wanted to do and to be when they grew up with my father before me, who's a police officer but my father was two very different people. He was a police officer by day and a raging alcoholic a by very night. Very troubled man, yeah, that which, came across. Which makes me passionate about mental health and wellness for police officers. So having the experience I had with him helped me understand that we have to do something about this profession and the dirty little secret and the high suicide rate. Right. My dad blew his head off at 70 years old and the demons caught up with him. And you know, the, the questions about how long he'd been carrying all that with him. Right, a lifetime, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's easy for you to say, yeah. young lady. Um, 
it's funny how we both ended up in the same place very differently. My father passed away when I was a teenager, and I really needed to get out of the house. But we both ended up in policing as 17-year-old cadets. But you'd always known that you were going that way. And for me, it was kind of like an afterthought. And it's only after I joined, it was like, I really like this. I yeah. like the people I'm with. Yeah, no, I've always wanted to do it. And that to me was the pinnacle, right? Just at 21 years old, I had reached my life goal. And if you had ever said to me in that moment that I would have become the chief of police in, in that organization, I would have laughed because there were no women of rank when I came on in my department. And so I didn't see that possibility or that visibility. and. When you don't think something's possible or see something, you know, it's, it's really not a part of your plan. And so I just was loving being a cop. And then, you know, things change and I decided to pursue that. That's also fascinating. You're not the first person to say this to me. I spoke recently to Jackie Sabir in the UK, who took 15 years before she had a supervisor that was a female supervisor. She ended up becoming the staff officer to Cressida Dick, who just retired as the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police in London. But 15 years before she had anybody in that could mentor her from a female perspective. Oh, for sure. When I became the first female lieutenant in the history of my police department. How many officers are there? Over 300. That's incredible yeah. if you think about it. It is. It absolutely is. It, it tells a story. But I was so uncomfortable with the headlines because I was getting promoted with my colleagues who are males. I had come up with these men and they are just as competent, amazing men, but it was all about me. My whole career, I just wanted to be one of the guys. I just wanted to fit in. Yep. So it took me until I think I became a commander where I started to recognize the responsibility of being a first and why that visibility matters, which shows you how remedial I am because you would have thought since I didn't have that role model and didn't see it that I would welcome being that role model, but instead I was like, no, look away. That notion of just being essentially one of the boys, I think sometimes it drives people to be the type of police officer that they don't naturally want to be. Yeah. And I've been talking to people about that almost impossible metric, which is what is the ideal police officer? Yeah. And that culture drives, you know, to be one of the boys mm -hmm. will take you down a certain path, mm -hmm. especially in a male-dominated business. For sure. Did you feel that pressure to go that route? I did, and I will tell you that men feel it too. And yeah. I didn't understand that until I started telling this story about my attempt to fit in. And then I started emulating the officers around me. And that could be good or bad, depending on which officers you choose to emulate. Right. And I'm a 17-year-old cadet, and I'm riding with any cop that will let me. Like, hey, can I go on a ride along with you? And it just so happened that these police officers were not necessarily the ones who should be putting forth the example to a young sponge. And <laughs> so I started emulating the way they acted. As I look back, that's where I started to understand where I lost myself, what I call my street personality. I started to talk down to people instead of to people. And I judged people and I was very curt. And this is nothing like my actual personality. Oh, it's, it's totally mine. I'm still like that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so I, but I started to think, okay, if I'm a cop, then I have to borrow power from my position and I have to act as if I have power. Well, then it started to click in me as I started to watch the other police officers who were successful. Successful in that they treated people with human dignity and respect and still did their jobs. Right. 
put handcuffs on them, you know? I think we tend to venerate cops who don't demonstrate a lot of doubt. They seem to know what they're doing all the time. But then when you get into leadership positions, that's an area where more doubt is necessary because the problems are so more nuanced and complicated and some of them are wicked problems that don't have easy solutions. Well, first of all, yeah, to touch on your first point, there is a confidence that must be, we call that command presence. Right. Where we have to exude that or else if you walked onto a scene and you you know, didn't have any of that, no one would listen to you. So no, it becomes the technical term, I think, is a clusterfuck. Exactly. And so you have to have that certain nuance to be able to command a situation. You know, sometimes you have to be in that mode where it's task, not ask. Absolutely. But that's not all the time. No, I was going to say is we have our yes people, our no people, and our maybe people. And our jobs are to get people to yes. What we fail to do is tap into the greatest tool that we have as individuals, which is our human influence. But you mentioned as you move up into leadership positions, the fact that you do not know the answer or do not know what to do. I, I became chief and I led through a mass shooting, a pandemic and civil unrest. And I can tell you, yeah, I did, did not know what I was doing. Yeah, but did you have any interesting things happen in your chief? <laughs> exactly. Well, the first couple of years went swimmingly. And then, you know, and then... <laughs> you got lulled into a false sense of security. I've got I was this. Like, this chief thing, you know, three years in, I was like, man, we're killing it, you know? And These then, guys at ICP <laughs> making a big meal of it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Anybody can lead during times of peace. But that is where... As a leader, and, and I have never felt shame in saying, guys, I need help. I do not know how to handle this. This pandemic is brand new for me in my lifetime and in my leadership. I think as a leader, that to me is, and honestly, this is how I've made it through by saying, I'm not sure what to do here and I will take the best idea, whoever has it. Yeah, the mass shooting, I mean, it's this is the kind of thing that you wouldn't wish on anybody. This was only 2019, February 2019, and it was a former employee, and I'm not going to name him, because nope. fuck him, yep. walked into the Henry Pratt company in, it's in Aurora, okay. Illinois. What does the company do? It manufactures valve, you know, water valve. No reason to think that this is going to happen. No, he was working that morning and he had gotten written up the night before for That's a right. very minor infraction, not wearing his safety goggles on the plant oh. floor. But this had been a series of minor infractions that he had been disciplined for. And at 9.30 that morning, he made a comment to his comrades that if he gets called into the office later that afternoon, that he was going to basically blow up everyone and take everyone down with him. And not one person reported that to a supervisor. But he made those threats and stuff like that in the past, I believe, he to had, some degree. He was angry. They, they dubbed yeah. him as this guy was angry all the time. And, of course, there were lots of people in society like that. So yeah. how do you, you know, right. yeah. how do you pick the one is going to commit a mass shooting? Yeah. And then he ends up killing five people. Your officers turn up within four minutes, which is spectacular as a response rate. But then the whole scene takes, what, 90 minutes to unfold? Yeah. Well, first of all, after he can't find anyone in the plant, so he had shot five people, they run out. So he then sets up an ambush for the officers who are responding. And one by one shoots them, five of them. Yeah. You got four officers hit and one was hit by shrapnel. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Crazy. One of the things that I was thinking about with this, your ex-husband, mm -hmm. who you seem close to, you have some kids yes. with, and your current wife, mm -hmm. are both in the department. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. Jerry Springer, isn't it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I wasn't yeah. going to go there. Yeah. But I'm just trying to think, when you're hearing all this unfold on the radio, is that is this summer that's crossing your mind? Oh, every 
every officer. Matt, your, your ex-husband, yeah. was one of the responding officers. Yeah, and he was with the cluster of three flanking the door, the two got shot. So, so the father of your kids is rushing into... Father of my children is yeah. rushing in, and my daughter, meanwhile, is calling, are you guys okay? Right. And I can't tell her because I don't know that he's okay. Three of her four parents are police officers, and you know she's asking me, but I had this moment even before, you know, about my ex-husband and my wife. It was these people who are getting shot, their wives flashed into my head. I know their wives. I know their kids. I mean, right. I've been yeah. in this police department for 30 years. And then when I heard my ex-husband announce that he was on scene, I was having all of these thoughts. But then it has to be a switch. And I remember saying, stop. You have to focus. You cannot stay there. I can't stay in emotion. I can't work and operate in emotion. I had things to do with the scene. I had a role to play and I managed, I don't know how I did it, right. to flip that switch and just dive right in into work. And, and it wasn't until, it was actually later, that my wife Chris texted me and said, I'm going in. Because at this point now, this became a 90 minute manhunt for the shooter. And she said, I'm going in. And I had that moment again. I sat there, I looked at the phone, and I responded, and I still have that text, and it says, go kill that motherfucker. Bring out my total nerd capacity here, because in Star Trek, there is this training scenario called the Kobayashi Maru, but it's, it's an impossible scenario that you can't win, and it's about sort of training people on leadership in impossible situations. This sounds yeah. like that, yeah. right? You know, yeah. it's a shooting, you've got officers injured, you don't know where the shooter is, and now on top of this, You've got family members family. involved. You know, Come on, at that point. Yeah, exactly. You know. Oh, no. Yeah, it was it was absolutely insane. But it didn't really hit me until later. There is a 13-minute video that I have of all of my officers getting shot by this monster. It wasn't until that moment that as I was editing this video, watching the bullet whiz by my children's father's head, it took me 20 times to watch it before I stopped sobbing. So what in the moment, in the middle of it all, it was like, let's go get this motherfucker. And afterwards it was, I almost lost my family. Do you think, because you have the after action, you have the media to deal with, you've got all this afterwards. So it's not just a switch off for a moment, it's a switch off for an extended period of time. How much of a toll does that take on us? Because it's not, it's not normal. I mean, our, our evolution is to deal with things as they happen because yeah. that's our fight, not flight, all of this kind of stuff. But you're having to suppress all of these emotions and all of this kind of thing for an extended period of time. Yeah. That's got to take a toll. Yeah. Well, and here is where I will say I failed epically. I, I think I did a great job of taking care of my police officers. That's all I wanted to do was make sure they were okay and the families of the victims. I went to every funeral, tried to stay in contact with them and made sure that not only on the day of the incident that we had mental health professionals at the ready and we had already started building a culture of make, moving away from that machismo, you know, I, I'm not gonna ask for help to it's courageous to ask for help. So we'd put all of these mechanisms in place. So the officers were doing a fantastic job asking for help and going in and talking to people. And and one of them showed up at my house with a bottle of whiskey, you know, on the Sunday after That's the shooting. That's always a solution, if in doubt, single You know what, would I tell you what? <laughs> well, you know what you need in the moment, and that is what that man, he brought his wife, and they sat in my living room, and I, I drank whiskey with him because that is what he needed in the moment. If it works. It works. I it's don't, not I a long-term solution. That. I don't, especially coming from, remember, you know, my raging alcoholic father, but, you know, so I don't condone that as a long-term, yes, a solution. But what ultimately happened was I spent so much time putting energy into making sure everyone else was okay. And I didn't realize that in that 
process, I was not okay. Right. And because I didn't think I could be, and I had to make sure they were okay. Also, I mean, that's going to have impacted your kids. Oh, I'm sure, absolutely, because I was at, at that point still talking about it as you know the incident, the shooting incident, and not talking about it at the level of emotion that it deserved. You know, and my ex-husband went and got help immediately. I mean, he did the right thing, you know. But for me, and it wasn't until someone walked into my office as well and said, "Hey, you okay?" You know, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm fine." You know, and they're like, "Okay, we just want to make sure you're okay because you're taking care of everyone else." And I was like, "Yeah, I'm totally fine." Yes, yeah, that kind of yeah, I'm totally fine. Yeah. Just don't ask, don't penetrate. Exactly. They let me fake that, you know, and and I was good at it though. I said, "No, I'm great. I'm fine. Just make sure you guys are okay." And it wasn't until I broke down, you know, later it was when my son called me and one of our victims, shooting victims was the same age as my son. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until weeks later that I missed a call from my son and it was that that triggered me because right. I immediately thought that child, that mother who lost her son, Trevor Wainers, his name, and he was killed um, on that day, she can never call her son back. Right. And I missed a call from my son. And what I What if just, that was the last call? Oh, that's what did it. So it took that moment and I fell to my knees and I sobbed and I called my son and I just kept calling him until he answered. He was in college and he left class. And that was the moment, you know, and that couldn't have been great for him, you know, to, to have to manage me. But that's what it took. So it's the, the point here is that you do you can think that you're okay, but your head tells you you are, and your your heart tells a different story. You've now moved into spending a lot of time traveling mm-hmm. and talking about leadership. And I was fascinated reading the book that I didn't know that Michael Neela was a captain of yours. He obviously runs Blue yeah. Courage, who's been trying to help a lot of police departments and their leadership teams deal more more deeply yeah. with some of these issues beyond the kind of superficial leadership stuff, which I think is absolutely great. Yeah. Are the lessons from your experience, especially around a mass shooting event, but but I suppose more broadly, especially being a a woman leader in policing, have they come easily in terms of speaking to people, talking about this? Yes, and the reason is because I'm very comfortable in front of a crowd, and it started as a young community-oriented policing officer where I found my place in front of an angry neighborhood that was mad about crime happening or quality of life issues. And I learned early to have a voice in front of an audience. Well, and those skills are pretty useless now because there's no angry neighborhoods out no, there no at all. So. Everyone's so calm. So I, was, I cultivated that early on in my career. But the lessons of leadership, you know, Michael Neela, you mentioned, you know, was, was one of the ones that pushed me towards all of the schooling, the education I got. But isn't that interesting? It's, it's almost like you need a mentor in policing to say, hey, go and become more educated, yeah. take that role. It, it comes back to that, what we were initially talking about. Sure, if you have a culture that's pretty anti-intellectual, yes. you can get sucked up into that. And I know some departments where they almost wear their anti-intellectualism as a badge of honor. They do. And they call it street smarts. And you don't need any education or opposing thoughts. And to me, formal education, and, and maybe let's not even call it formal. Let's not call it formal education because there are people who... I don't believe that a degree makes you smarter. I I know lots of people with PhDs. (laughs) I can completely agree with that. Exactly. My my point is well taken. Uh, But bettering yourself. Are you learning different philosophies of policing? Are you bettering yourself? Because when you better yourself, then you better our profession. So it's interesting that it's almost like having somebody else 
who was doing that, like Michael and some other people in other departments, almost gave you permission to go, no, it's okay, I'm going to go and explore other ideas. Yeah, I've gravitated towards those mentors who have pushed me to education. You know, I had one sergeant that had a book club, you know, and hey, if you guys want to read it's a fantastic. book. fantastic. Yeah, and I loved that, you know, because that to me, I was thirsty for it. And I think that that is exactly what we need to cultivate, if not just to open dialogue. of. Well, I mean, they could also listen to podcasts, yeah, couldn't they? Yeah, listen a to great a podcast. Idea. And that is now the evolution of books. People don't have time to read, and so people listen to podcasts. Same thing. It's the what data are you getting? What education are you getting? Is it an opposing position? Great, let's talk about that. Yeah. Instead of, I disagree with you and I don't want to hear from you, wow, tell me how you came to that idea that I truly do not understand. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you've been going around and doing a bunch of traveling, and you've been, and one thing I had to laugh, I'm going to tell you this because I laughed at your tweet where you were put up in a hotel that was hosting a junior cheerleading competition. 7,000 <laughs> so, cheerleaders. Nobody 7, tells you. 7,000. Nobody ever tells you this when you start traveling. People, oh, it's, so, it's great for when you go traveling, you go to these great places. And I was just in Avila, Spain, which is a beautiful city, but they never put me up in a fucking hotel, which was full of cheerleaders. The, the level of shrieking, I mean, the, the decibels, <laughs> oh it was, and flip-flops down the hallway. I mean, very impressive, you know, acrobatic feats, uh, but also very loud. I did not get any sleep during that stay. Oh, I can't imagine. I mean, I once stayed at a Marriott and I can't remember where it was, but I walked into the hotel room and they had the brochure. It has a picture of some loungers on a beach. It's, you know, join the Marriott Club and stay in these beautiful places. And I looked outside of the window and I was looking over the this sort of the loading dock of the local shopping mall and there was a meth head beating the crap out of an industrial dumpster that had wronged him in some fashion i'm going this is not what the brochure it's looks like brochure no. that is a bait and switch travel it's uh, it's entertaining but when you're doing this and you're speaking to these groups i mean are these lessons is it just passing on the experience or are there sort of structured ways that people really can learn the lessons because there's there's so much in the mass shooting dealing with the incident at the time. So there's a lot to learn about how to manage that. Then dealing and managing the people afterwards, mm -hmm. and then dealing and managing yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a lot to squeeze into. Yeah. Come and talk for an hour. Yeah, it is. And that's why I can barely fit it in in an hour. The epiphanies I had is that this conversation about you know, shooting preparation and prevention shouldn't be for cops. We can talk about operations, what went right, what to do, what not to do. But the true essence of this conversation needs to be with organizations like the one I just described in my own city where he basically called out what he was going to do and no one did anything about it, right? But it's there's going to be culture. so many false positives. That's the problem. Because everybody okay. can talk, right? But that's okay because I would rather delve into and find it a false positive than have five people killed. Right. I mean, that's surely a role for a broader scope of organizations Absolutely. than just the police. Oh, that's and that's part of what my message is. I invite people to discard my event. Insert your organization here. Insert your employees. Insert your people. And now change your mindset, change your paradigm. What is the boogeyman for you? Is it a mass shooting? What is the worst thing that could possibly happen? Oh, that's a cheerful Sit. way to look at it. Exactly, and people think, are you inviting bad juju? But no, it's because once you have played this out in your mind, you now know 
how to better prepare for it. So my voice, I think, is really not for cops. It's for organizations because they are going to be the ones that prevent the next mass shooting by identifying a person that nine times out of 10, 99 out of 100, you can connect the dots backwards and say, gosh, we saw that coming with that guy. But so much of that feels like it's hindsight bias. And I think the psych people are starting to build those kind of yeah. things with much better predictive capacity than we've had in the past. Yeah. The challenge is to get people to use them because I worry that so many police departments are not proactive in their thinking. If you're sort of proactive or intelligence-led, the officer driving out of the station yard should know whether he or she is turning left or right. Mm -hmm. Because if it doesn't matter, mm -hmm. then they're just a reactive police department answering 911 calls. And I still worry that too many police departments are like that. Mm -hmm. I agree, and, but I also think, uh, and I'll push back here a little bit, is the onus being on the police officers, right? They're yeah. going to respond to the mass shooting, to the thing, insert the thing here. You know, look at 9-11, yep. the greatest terrorist attack of our time. Who showed up? Cops and firefighters. Black helicopters from the military did not fall from the sky. I'm sure there's a conspiracy website that does say that uh, black, the black helicopters were, were all over the place. They were responsible for yep. it. But my point here is that the onus is always on the police. Well, I'm putting the onus on organizations to identify because you know who you sit next to in a cubicle that is about to implode. So I'd like a little bit of personal responsibility. Well, I think also that you could spread that even wider which is so many times when police get called to an incredibly difficult situation. It's because prior to that, there's been a decade of failure in so many other organizations within yeah. our society. Absolutely, and Mental we are the health, last resort. Homeless, yeah. you know, advocacy, mm -hmm. yeah, education, the whole yeah. deal. One of the quotes that I enjoyed in your book, which was not actually yours, but I'm gonna give you the credit for it, is, Leadership is about disappointing people at the rate they can absorb. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> I, like to think, I had to reread that about four times to get my head around exactly what it was saying. Yeah. Because it's almost the antithesis of all that rah, 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 motivational speaker kind of yeah. stuff. And, and I love this because I'm the least motivational speaker kind of person, you know. It's probably due to being British. But... <laughs> It, I love that. Leadership is about disappointing people at the rate they can absorb. Marty Linsky said that in a classroom at Harvard. I went to Harvard. I like to pause there. And say, Good for you. It was expensive. <laughs> yeah. For three weeks. Uh, so I was at a program at Harvard, state and local executives, and he was one of our instructors. And I am a bright-eyed commander. Of course, read everything I can on leadership. And what I've learned about leadership is what I aspire to be, knowing I can never make it there, but the visionary. You could go around a bookshop in an airport and find a thousand books on leadership. Absolutely. And to me, leadership is something that you aspire to be, but you will never attain. But Marty Linsky stood in front of us and said those words. And I thought, have you lost your GD mind? Leadership is about inspiring. It's about taking people to where they, they should go and they don't see it themselves. It's about the mission. This is sounding very Star trek -y again. God, I know, it's so beautiful. <laughs> and then I became the chief. And then I understood, I knew that as long as I was making those decisions at, at, for the right reasons at the right time, that there still was going to be someone disappointed, someone pissed off, someone who disagreed. We're never ready for parenthood, for marriage, for you know the next promotion, for the, the new job. You have to get ready when you're in that seat. And even though we prepare for it, we're never quite ready. We haven't learned the nuances of the job. And it was in that moment, those words made perfect sense to me. So explain it. 
Leadership is uncomfortable. It's about making decisions that are best for your organization and it might create some discomfort for those in your organization because that's what change does. Look at policing now. One of the examples that springs to mind, which is that I think over the couple of years shy, 40 years I've been involved in policing in some fashion, is different attitudes towards gay, lesbian, mm -hmm. bisexual, transgender, queer, etc. That has changed hugely so that I see young police officers now completely comfortable with colleagues of every and every sexuality going. And that was not the case when I started. A lot of people struggled in policing to be themselves mm -hmm. in that kind of environment. And that's one of the changes. You know, and I'll add another layer to that is women as well, because when, traditionally when I first became a sergeant, I was overseeing men who had been in the profession for 20 plus years and did not like answering to a woman. Well, then the, the, the younger officers, they've only seen their mothers in workforce, in the workforce. Right. I laughed because one of the objections that I remember from back in the dark ages and the Neolithic era was that, you know, one of the things was, oh, women are not strong enough to do the job. That old bullshit, right? Yeah. And I laughed when I read your story about chasing like a six foot three guy from a traffic stop who had warrants out for him. Because even though you're like five foot four, I mean, I'm looking at you now, you're like a hundred pounds soaking wet. <laughs> yeah. But I'm super tough. Don't let, don't let my appearance fool you. And you just basically grabbed this guy, grabbed hold of him, and he just kept going. Kept going. And that was funny. Kept going but you resolved it in a really interesting way. The, the only thing I had on my tool belt to use was my gun. And in that moment, he was not armed. I had not seen anything that where I felt my life was in danger. Okay, that's off the table. I'm gonna have to use my words. And it was in that moment that I just said, look, dude, I know you can kill me. It, it was a survival strategy, by the way, but also vulnerable to say, I know that you can overpower me. Here I am a cop, right? Yeah. And he responded to that in a way, he literally stopped. I just said, listen, you're, got, you're not gonna gain any street cred by beating up a baby cop, you know? And I'm sure I wasn't as articulate as I was riding his back, um, but the dude just stopped. And what he said to me was, nobody's ever just talked to me before. And that's when I started paying attention. Even the biggest and baddest cops, the ones who would just talk to people, right. did not borrow power from their position or their physicality and just use human influence and they were the most successful. They talked people into handcuffs. The tagline about this, which I think is also great, as you're walking back to the car, he points out a potentially career-ending uh, little drama for you. Yeah, I literally got him in handcuffs and went to grab my radio to notify all the other cops who were looking for me that I had him in custody and my radio was gone. And he said, you dropped your radio back there. And the man, while he was in handcuffs, led me to where my radio was. And I picked it up and of course, you know, I was badass, you know, subject in custody. I love the way you drop your voice yeah, just for that very hard. That's like, like your airline pilot <laughs> voice, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but what a, what a lesson learned. And I'm so glad I learned that early in my career because it changed the trajectory of how I treated people. People will do bad things. Yeah. But we're not the arbiters of that. That's what the courts are there for. People aren't bad all the time. You build relationships with people. You never know when they're going to remember it and they step in. I, I, this is where I have a bit of time for a lot of the procedural justice training. Mm -hmm. Because it's, you know, I think it's been sold that this is the right thing to do. No, sell it as this is building relationships with people. You may be helping the next cop out. Yeah, I agree. By building a relationship, you may be helping the next cop out when that guy doesn't take a swing at, yeah. at them. That's so interesting that you bring that up because these I, I often hear these skills called soft skills, right? Communication, compassion, empathy. And yet when you really look at what these skills bring, 
it's officer safety. It truly yeah. is de-escalating that other person from harming you. And so I argue vehemently that, that you can call them soft skills, but these are survival skills, you yeah. know, and just showing a little bit of compassion and God forbid, vulnerability, yeah. uh, I, I believe that they will save you, or to your point, the next person that is, interacts with that person. I've been doing work with transit cops and uh, it, there's actually a lot of community policing goes on even around subway stations because you have a community of people around there. And the ones that build relationships, you can just see at some point, if things go south, they may have a bit, you know, somebody may step in and help, or at the very least not step in to pile on. Yeah. And these, these small things make a difference, building relationships. And like you said, there, I call it cops and robbers. There's always going to be crime. Thank For, goodness, otherwise we'd be unemployed. We would be unemployed, we right? Job what the hell security. I would do otherwise, yeah. <laughs> Job security. Know, right? But people are neither all good nor all bad, unless you are a, a you know, bona fide psychopath, right? Do things I feel seen. Good. And you can point to why they are the way they are, right? Yeah. The product of their upbringing, their environment. It's all, it's textbook, especially to, you know, a guy like you. And listen, we still have to do our jobs. We're, that doesn't mean that we're soft and we're not going to turn our heads. You know, there's accountability that matters. Just like I think cops should be held accountable. Yeah. Just like cops should be held accountable so should members of the community and that's what our job is yeah it's called law enforcement right we still have to enforce the law yeah. that's not sexy you know so it's not sexy but it has to be done but i believe it can somebody be once done. said that policing is a necessary evil it is look at our democracy when left to its own devices we will have vigilante justice we need the rule of law and i think that's right now where our society is falling. Okay, we tried that whole defund and you know abolish, and the police took a step back. And to your point, they you know turned left or right. They didn't know they were just showing up, right? And where does that get us? Violent crime is up thirty percent. Some cities are seeing more homicides than they've ever seen before. Listen, I mean, in my profession, we call that a clue. You need <laughs> the rule of law. You'd never be a sociologist, you know, <laughs> choosing to ignore all logic. those lessons. Yes, I know. I just, I, I'm, I'm into logic. Careful and now. Dangerous territory, exactly. this. Exactly. All this thinking. Where's yeah. it going to get you? You know, the word reform it insinuates this complete overhaul. Listen, I, I started my career with the Rodney King incident. I ended my career with the George Floyd incident. If you looked at the two bookends of my career, you would not assume that change has taken place. And yet we've developed body cams. We've, you know, and... By the way, this is before George Floyd. I mean, yeah. good progressive chiefs that have genuinely committed to making their law enforcement team better have committed to these things. Mental health and wellness for their police officers, de-escalation training, all of the things that were demanded of us after George Floyd. I've been doing that for 10 years at my police department base and my predecessor started that. So, so to say we need a complete overhaul it is not factual in my opinion. I spoke to Bill Bratton and he said, I'm a reformer. Yeah. I think the issue is that people on the outside who don't have a good sense of the changes don't get it and they don't see that inside the policing, there, oh. there are lots of reformers who are moving Absolutely. policing forward. Yeah, but they just been... don't see it because they're not involved. Correct, and then the headlines don't help, right? Those few incidents don't help. Now, arguably, they're big incidents, so there's no defending those. No. But gosh, the, the, the but you thousand... But you can't judge a profession that has 60 to 70 million police community interactions a year yeah. by the three or four videos you see every every month 
yeah. on YouTube. Without a doubt. And I also think that because policing is conducted in the public eye, it has been forced to be more reform-oriented than many other professions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd love to see surgeons wearing body-worn cameras for every surgery and make those public. Yeah. I think we'd be horrified in some cases. I think you're right. And I think judges should wear body cams and state's attorneys. I mean, when you Prosecutors, talk about when they're making the decisions about whether, whether they're going to prosecute a case or not. Absolutely. We should be able to see those decisions. Yeah, but so we're always going to have people that are going to commit crimes. But it's it, to me, it's about holding people accountable. And we need to hold police accountable and our society. Yeah. Finding that balance. Yeah, it's very difficult. But it's necessary. And there are great cops out there that can do it. And I believe in them. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been lulled by this gentle jazz. Yeah, this cocktail hour jazz piano playing in the Is this background. This club. Where are we? Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> Unfortunately, they're about to wrap up and close, so we better wrap up. But I can uh, talk to you all day because this doesn't even feel like it's being recorded. It's no, just, this I has love been, your brain. This has been super fun. Yeah. Thanks ever so much for doing this. What's next for you? I don't know. For the first time, you know, I was with my department for 30 years, and I left a little early before I turned 50. I'm 48. And I left because I really felt I could be more impactful in the law enforcement world. You're here at an ICP meeting, so you're still clearly wanting Absolutely. to be involved. I am very much involved with the international chiefs, for sure. But my voice right now is important, I think, to spread the message of preparation, culture, leadership. And so that's what I'm doing right now. And I'm very lucky because people are asking me to speak. I know that that is a gift and it probably won't last forever, so I'm conscious of that. But they keep asking me to speak, I'm going to keep doing it. I will say I get little pangs when I get a phone call that says, hey, would you consider you know, putting in for this chief's job? And I have those moments and you know, when the right one comes along, I can't promise that I won't pursue that, I don't know. And is the idea that, I mean, I, I felt it when I left the job, from what you think is gonna be your career future all laid out and then I had a mountaineering accident and that was the end of my career yeah. and uh, in equal parts I found it daunting and exhilarating. From a person who has always had her life plotted, planned, where Structured. I was, uh, I am a, you knew where you were going. I am a person of structure, I do not jump without a net, I'm free falling and honestly it's that's a great word it's exhilarating because I have now opened myself to experiences and speaking at organizations that have taught me so much never would have predicted that so I'm I'm enjoying the free fall right now and I don't know where I'm gonna land that's great yeah well it's been great chatting to you thanks very much for spending Thank some time you. with me. what an honor to be on this, oh, this please famous <laughs> podcast oh <laughs> gosh this is great That was episode 49 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Washington, D.C. in May 2022. A link to Kristen's book can be found at reducingcrime.com slash podcast, where you can also find transcripts of this and every episode. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducing crime, or you can just subscribe so you don't miss any episode. Instructors, DM me there for support materials. Be safe and best of luck.